Welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast on how the world was, is, and will be ordered. I'm Rachel Tausenbrunn, and I'm your host today in Berlin again, another Berlin takeover, but this time in substance as well as location. We're talking about Germany and their crisis of leadership or chance of new leadership. I guess it depends how you want to look at it. I have two German specialists, Germany specialists from the Berlin office in here with me. Suda David Wilp, who's the deputy director of the Berlin office and a famous Germany explainer to Americans. And Jan Teichau, who is head of our Europe program, but also actually focuses a lot on Germany, Germany's role in the world, and German defense. I mentioned already a leadership question. Angela Merkel has said she will be stepping down as the head of the party. And there are basically three candidates vying to fill her shoes. Suda, I'm going to ask you first, just introduce two out of the three, and then we'll let Jan take over where you left off. Well, as an American, Rachel, I think I don't really have a dog in the fight per se. So why don't I use the category of I will describe the two male candidates that are vying for the position and I'll leave Jan to talk about the female candidate. So as you mentioned, Angela Merkel said she will not run again as chancellor during the next election and she'll step down as party chair, which he's been holding that position for the past 18 years, I believe. And it's time for the CDU to find a new leader. And usually that leader will go on to run for chancellor when the party enters a general election. So the two male candidates are Friedrich Merz, who's made a comeback. He has been out of politics for almost a decade, a formal rival of Angela Merkel, and she neutralized him as she neutralized many of her male rivals in the party. He comes from the private sector. He is now working for a financial services company, BlackRock to be exact. And he is leading in the polls along with the female candidate, which my colleague Jan will describe. And the other candidate is a gentleman by the name of Jan Spahn, who's the current health minister in the cabinet. I guess you can call him sort of a young Turk, kind of critical of Merkel usually, and uh, an interesting character as well. He's gay, which is something of an anomaly in the CDU. He does have support among young people and has been seen always as a potential chancellor candidate. But I think with Friedrich Merz and um, the other candidate that Jan is going to describe, his chances are looking quite slim. The third one, the the female in the race, is Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. And apart from having an unpronounceable name, she's presumably the one candidate that resembles Chancellor Merkel the most, both in style and in substance. I'm not sure that's 100% true, but she's certainly the one that is seen as, you know, the the closest one to to Merkel two or something like this. And we have seen discussions uh, between the three leading candidates, the candidates Suda just mentioned and then and then Angrid Kang-Pahrenbauer, about, you know, that they're in this open contest in party conferences throughout Germany, talking to the party base, you know, feeling the temperature of the party, who is out there, where does the party stand, you know, what do they want? And I think out of the three, it's really only Mats and Kang-Pahrenbauer who have a viable chance. With Jens Spahn, uh, this young Turk, um, he, um, I don't think, has a real chance to come out on top. But for him, this campaign is nevertheless important because he positions himself, you know, among the top leaders of the party for the future. He's still very young. Uh, he's, what, 37, 38? He's a future face of the party no matter what. Uh, and to have played at this level at an early stage is certainly strategically interesting for him. The other thing, the other subtext of this whole contest is 
how conservative should the party become again? Friedrich Merz is openly embracing, you know, more conservative or typically conservative positions. He's tough on homeland security issues. He's tougher on, on migration politics than the female uh, candidate. And so it's a battle for the soul of the party, really. And we have seen interesting developments. At first, Merz really kind of hogged the show. And he um, he was seen as the contrast to Merkel, finally really an alternative program. But slowly but surely, Kam Karnbauer has caught up because she can read the psyche of the party very well from the inside. I think, you know, this kind of empathy for the party is her strong side. And so we have two really different kinds of candidates. And so the CDU has a choice and it has a choice for the first time in a long time. You touched on this a bit because Jens Spahn, at least to people who aren't watching these things closely, I would say he became you know, well-known after the kind of backlash following the refugee crisis within the CDU and the rise of the AfD. And there were then these kind of conservative wings within the CDU or CDU CSU who were saying, you know, we need to make the conservative party more conservative again. And I would have put him, you know, and also some younger people, I would have put him in that group. I feel like that's what made him, you know, prominent recently. And you're saying Matz is also very consciously wanting to steer the CDU in a more conservative direction. Because I think what's going on here is first you have Merkel in the end of a very long era. And it does, however, coincide with a new pretty strong challenger on the right with the Alternative für Deutschland AfD party, which is the first party in Germany post-war history, right, of the CSU to be, I think now they're in every regional every regional government and in the parliament. So how much is this a struggle explicitly or implicitly for a battle with the AfD and a battle with conservatism? I mean, I think actually, to be honest with you, the CDU is in pole position because regardless of who the next chair is of the party, most likely the CDU will have the next chancellorship as well. Because, it, you know, on the left side of the spectrum, it doesn't look like they can muster up a majority to form a coalition. So the CDU is really in the driver's seat. And yes, if you look at the party, certainly one can easily say, well, AKK, short for Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, is a um, you know, Merkel 2.0, she will keep the party where it is in the middle or even maybe move it closer to the middle or, or closer to the left. And um, Friedrich Merz will probably try to tack to the right. But, you know, both of the um, both of the uh, candidates, Merz and Akaka, have been quite coy because Friedrich Merz has certainly had a more of a hardline position on, say, migration and deportation. But he's also talked about strengthening Europe and maybe seeing how that Germany may want to have to pay more to make the EU work better, which is perhaps different than maybe some of the fiscal conservatives in his party think. And even Akaka has also struck a conservative tone. She kind of um, disavowed, for example, um, the um, marriage between homosexuals. She's she's offered a differing position. So it's still really hard to say, but I think to um, look at it um, in terms of both right and left, yes, Akaka is more in the middle or toward the left, whereas um, Friedrich Merz would probably bring his the party home. Although the party system is so fragmented right now, what does that mean? I mean, is there really space on the right? Because it looks like the AFD is quite entrenched. Maybe it may not do as well in the future as it's done during the last election, 
but it looks like this party is here to stay for the new future. You agree, Jan? Yeah, no, the AfD is here to stay. I agree. Um, the question is, can it grow much more than it already has? We've seen them stall a little bit in the two recent regional elections where they um, scored still quite high numbers, but you know, not as high as they had expected at the time. And so some people say that they've kind of reached the upper limit of whom they can mobilize on this you know, protest platform, which is really a protest platform more than it is a forward-looking policy platform. But, you know, the, the, the contest that we've described in the Conservative Party and the CDU over the, the position of chairman is also fundamentally about the question whether, you know, you fight AFD and right-wing populism by moving to the right or by staying firmly in the center. Uh, Merkel made that decision very early on. Um, she said, you know, we will lose anyways. It's better to stay in the middle and lose on the fringe than move to the fringe and lose in the middle. And that's been her kind of tactics. And so uh, in the eyes of her critics, she moved the party to the left. For her, it's the position that she wants to be in the center. And now the question is, is that the right strategy? Or will this lead to, you know, basically a slow motion depletion of your voting base, you know, because you can't offer something to your core conservative voters any longer? And Matt's and Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, I think, stand for these two strategies. Kramp-Karrenbauer, I think, would tend to emulate Merkel's position, staying firmly in the middle, while Merz believes that moving the party at least slightly to the right could be a winning proposition. And this is kind of the philosophical core, really, the philosophical difference, apart from some policy differences. This is the philosophical difference between the two. And I think this party is pretty much split in the middle on this. Uh, final word on this, which I think is important, the, the strategy to move to the right in order to fight AFD was not particularly successful in Bavaria, where the conservative sister party of the CDU had a pretty bad voting evening, and they had tried over months and months to move to the right and kind of steal back the votes that they had lost there, which in the end led to a pretty disastrous election result for them. So the CDU is taking its cues from this as well, and yet the temptation to move to the right exists. So you can see that in that conservative party, which wasn't particularly conservative under Merkel, there's still definitely a conservative life wire that exists and that wants to see the light of day again. The very first Out of Order episode, we looked at the question of German leadership. Because when we started the podcast, you know, the whole world was crumbling. We'd had Brexit. We'd had the election of Trump. And Merkel was kind of the strong liberal force still standing. I'll editorialize a bit, but I would say, you know, it's been a complete disappointment in terms of that actually translating into German leadership, right? What we saw instead was complete stagnation, not a kind of consistency, but a basic stagnation because you know, her position got weaker, there was unending clashes, then there was the election, and the election led to no more clarity than before. So I guess now the question is, if you think of the future of the CDU, CSU, Christian Socialist and Christian Democrat leadership being very likely the future of German leadership, at least for the next election cycle, then what kind of pictures are we getting? I mean, uh, Suda mentioned Europe. Are, are these people people who have a strong Europe profile? Are these people who have a strong transatlantic profile? It's interesting that you ask that because I think fundamentally... Both of them probably have a same worldview when it comes to international affairs. Merz and Akaka. I mean, look, this is Germany. Nobody's taking, these are not risky candidates. This is not like Bernie Sanders running for the chair of the CDU party. These are people that 
People know their stance on the EU, and they also believe that a strong transatlantic partnership is a pillar, as well as a cohesive European Union. And both of them are going to follow this creed. I don't see them, you know, straying from that. The question is, how far will they go? And I think the problem is not necessarily the CDU, but it also will depend on what kind of coalition government they have. The problem is also, will they then enter a coalition with the Greens one day, or will they try to cobble together something with the FDP and the Greens? I mean, there's many different probabilities here, but ideally, if someone like Friedrich Merz is to be chancellor, there might be hope for some sort of realignment to the way the party system was before, and it could be that a conservative government the FTP and the CDU-CSU are in power in Berlin, and then will probably have the authority to take bold action. Merkel has never really been able to take bold action, albeit, and she missed the opportunity when she did govern with the FTP from 2009 to 2013, because she's always had to make compromises with the other center-left party, the SPD. Yeah. Uh, two aspects that I'd, I'd like to raise. The, the first one is that I think if, if Friedrich Merz, who has voiced these very pro-European, even quite radical by German standard, pro-European positions, if he were to run a German government and wanted to stick to these positions, that would actually be at least a small sea change in the German approach to Europe. Germany has been very cautious over the last couple of years, very cautious to embrace these big reform schemes. We all know that the euro needs to be reformed. It's not really politically viable. It's economically halfway viable, but not politically. And we have a huge problem on the security and defense side now that the transatlantic link looks less uh, reliable and the Europeans kind of realize that they have to do more. Neither of these two topics is something where the Germans have driven the agenda, where they have embraced bold steps. Now, Merz is actually fairly bold on both, especially on the euro, where he has argued for something that his party dislikes profoundly, which is, you know, going into some sort of transfer union, something that is a lot closer to the French position on this. If he were to follow through and, you know, and go this way, he would have to do uh, a lot of convincing in his own party to get through with it. And he would have to go basically against popular sentiment. That would be a risky position to come from, albeit one that some of the European partners in the EU would like to see from Germany. So that would actually be a real change. The other thing is uh, that Suda is absolutely right. I mean, none of these are really outlier candidates. In, in reality, Germany is not in for a revolutionary leadership change and maybe very final thing, because Suda mentioned coalitions, very important, Merkel is still in office. Um, we're talking about the chairmanship of the party. How long Merkel can stay in as chancellor after she loses the chairmanship of the party is not yet clear. How much longer can she retain that office? Is it in the interest of the then chairman to let her go for a while, or will that person seek the contest very, very soon? Uh, we don't know. And then Finally, the SPD, the Social Democrats who are in this coalition as well, also have a say because for whoever wants to be the next chancellor, their votes are needed. And whether the SPD is willing to vote in a fresh CDU person and continue the coalition until the end of this term, in my opinion, is highly questionable. Yeah, I guess it depends really on who is elected as chair. One could see Akaka and Chancellor Merkel somehow managing to forge a productive relationship and having Merkel stay long. I mean, I don't, it, it is hard to see her stay till the end of the term, but at least close to. Whereas with Friedrich Merz, even though he's been very respectful of her and has only said kind words about her during this jockeying process right now, we don't know if there would be a, a good working relationship when push comes to shove. 
They really detest each other, right? Probably. <laughs> I mean, she she basically, he left because of her. He left the party. And he had been sort of seen as the crown prince of the party. I think he and two other guys, Jan will remember this. What was it, like the Andean connection? Yes. These guys that were planning to somehow eventually be the leaders of the party. And she slowly got rid of them one by one. I think this is an important issue that you're mentioning. The way that he was outmaneuvered by her in 2002, after she had assumed the party chairmanship, she also wanted the leadership position in parliament for the party group in parliament. That was his position up to that point. And she outmaneuvered him, ousted him, and then something happened which to this day haunts him, and which is a character issue that is actually part of this debate that's going on in the Conservative Party. He basically, like a kid that didn't get its will, decided to leave. He threw it all in. He, uh, um, after a few years left parliament. He didn't stay on. He didn't serve the party, which in the CDU is a big factor. Are you serving the party? He didn't become minister in one of her cabinets. He didn't wait for the moment. And he left his conservative troops behind. Some people do question whether he is the real guy, whether he's the real deal. You know, is he just in it for himself? Is this an ego thing? Or can he also serve under difficult circumstances, which as chancellor, you know, you have to. And so is he chancellor material character-wise is one of those looming questions in the background. Really, he, I think he is beneficial for the, if you look at the German political system writ large, because as I said, everybody could sort of go back to their traditional profiles. He would be a gift for the SPD, for example, because they can then reclaim the its position on the left side of the spectrum. Also economically, right? Because part of the issue with him is that he's, pretty rich and comes from the kind of, you know, big finance, big money world and now. Exactly. And that's the, that's what exactly what I was going to talk about. You can tell he's been out of the game for too long because I had mentioned this to Jan before. It's kind of like amateur hour at the Apollo because he's been just making these mistakes about not being consistent and not being prepared to answer these questions that he should know are coming his way because he's been working for BlackRock. And in Germany, people sometimes have a problem with Wall Street. And he was asked, does he consider himself rich? And he told them with sort of an uneasy uh, face and an uneasy answer. He told the Build magazine, I think it is, he said that, you know, I'm of the sort of the upper middle class, which is completely off um, the mark. And I think he regretted it and tried to backpedal, but the damage was done. And he, he just seems a little bit rusty. There's maybe one factor that needs to be mentioned, and that's this kind of party congress dynamic, which you cannot really foresee. Just to jump up here, because I did mention this, part of the reason we're having this conversation is because there is the big convention where they're going to decide which of these three people is going to be the new head of the party. And, and it could very well be that he goes in there, gives one of his fantastic speeches, you know, the entire room starts to, starts to boil, and then he carries the day. And so people who were, you know, maybe inclined to vote for somebody else, then vote for him. We've seen these kind of ad hoc dynamics play out in German politics before. Um, and so uh, it's not uh, impossible that he, with his specific gift of speaking well, you know, carries the day. And in the end, so many factors on both sides of the equation. No doubt about it. I mean, he is a gifted orator. And he could certainly turn the table because he could give sort of a wonderful speech. And let's admit, too, there's a little bit of gender politics here as well, because the CDU may be yearning for daddy, you know, after having Muti for so long. Mm -hmm. And going back to Akaka, like you said, she knows the levers of power in the CDU, and she's been working it 
very well. So she's, it's really a very tight race. And she's been part of, you know, uh, the political fights of the last 15 years. She was a prime minister in a small state, won two elections, was minister there before she became prime minister. And then she did one thing, which I think for the psyche of the party is very important. She was prime minister of a state and she decided to leave that job and become what we call the secretary general of the party, which is really the chief organizer of the party, which is a demotion. It's a lesser job. And she did this um, because she wanted to prepare for the succession, but also the party was in need of somebody in that position. And this is something parties tend to honor. Let's pull back one last time before we enter the final segment. If you could think of sort of one change viewed from the US or viewed from maybe even bigger than Europe, right? For each of the candidates. If they take over, this will be the change that we maybe can hope for or worry about in German leadership globally. You know, I really don't see any stumbling blocks here because one could say that maybe uh, Friedrich Merz, because of his deep interest in transatlantic relations, and he is the chair of a organization called the Atlantic Brücke, the Atlantic Bridge, that he may have better ties with decision makers and will put the focus on the U.S., given the fact that the relationship is going through a very, very difficult time right now. So one could say that, but otherwise, I really don't see any pitfalls between either of the two. Apart from the the, the, the different positions or the, the rather bold position that Matt saw on the euro, which I mentioned earlier, there's maybe one thing that comes to mind. And that, of course, is that Angela Merkel, what made her so interesting and so alluring and attractive to many, you know, foreigners looking at Germany was her extreme diplomatic skill, her patience, um, her very analytical approach to politics, you know, the way that she always radiated that she wasn't in it for herself. There was very little ego that was visible. And this is why she looked so reliable. You know, she looked like a rock solid person. And even people who didn't particularly like her always said, you can rely on her. And for, for a new German chancellor, whoever it might be down the road, to emulate this and to fill those shoes and to radiate the same kind of Germany as a reliable diplomatic player kind of thing will be difficult. So I think initially, at least, for whoever becomes the successor, there will be a different German role. Germany within Europe is large by default, and it will always be powerful, no matter who's chancellor. But, you know, whether the next person who comes in can play that role in the same reassuring way that Merkel did uh, is one of the bigger questions, I think, that people around Europe and maybe the world are asking themselves. Well, on that question, let's see what happens at the party conference, and we will close this session with Think and Tank, which is where I ask the guests to come with something that either made them think recently or that, in their opinion, completely tanked. Jan, I'm going to start with you. Okay, I'm the I'm the tank guy here. <laughs> so the bad cop, uh, something that, you know, flopped or, you know, made me made me feel bad about the way politics is conducted. Not that there is a shortage of things to pick from, but the one thing here in the German context, which also has a a global component is this the discussion about this migration compact, this international agreement that was negotiated and which is now due, due of, uh, for, for signing. Uh, and we have a debate here, like in many other countries, about whether Germany should sign. It's a legally non-binding kind of thing. And the debate that we're having here is an illustration of two things. First of all, the massive loss of trust people have on the migration issue with people in government. Because of 2015, where we had this moment of, oh my God, the loss of control, people now are not really willing to completely trust government anymore when it comes to migration things. So they're not fully believing in what the government tells them. And so we have a discussion that's silly, you know, but 
it's completely rooted in this lack of trust. And the second thing is that the government has no idea how to properly communicate about this thing. And uh, so strategic communications um, that should be part of diplomacy from the outset was an afterthought in this which meant that those people who try to exploit this, who think that this is an abomination, which it is not, who believe that this is something that opens the floodgates for even more immigration, you know, the usual exploiters of this kind of thing, they are dominating the debate and they have defined the terms on which these debates are being conducted. Uh, and it's a shame. And it's amazing how the government, after having gone through a similar kind of meltdown over TTIP, a similar kind of meltdown over Afghanistan is not learning its lessons on strategic communications. It's it's actually quite painful to see. So as we started off the OOO podcast by splitting the question, I will take the think part of the question. And I think I'm going to give a plug to my co colleague, Jörg Forbrek, who just co-authored a report called Central European Futures, because it's interesting to think that Germany is approaching the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall, where the narrative of 1989 of peaceful democracies in Europe coming to fruition is, is actually not necessarily the reality. And I think that this report shows that Germany also, which will take over the EU presidency, I think in 2020, has some work to do in its um, eastern neighborhood. And so I'm going to tell everybody out there to go read Jörg's report, which he co-authored, because it makes people think about a whole and free Europe. So I have a, I guess it's a think, um, though it's a pretty hard-hitting and depressing thing. We had recently also the anniversary, speaking of anniversaries, of the armistice of the First World War. And on that anniversary, there was a long read from The Guardian called How Colonial Violence Came Home, The Ugly Truth of the First World War by Kanchas Mishra. And it's a, it's a long read, as the title suggests. And it's, it's just really interesting because it basically forces everyone to confront something that we in the West tend not to think that much about, which is the sort of the imperial part of World War I and the kind of the part of his argument. I mean, it's a sort of complex argument. And he, and he ties divisions that are happening over race in Western societies now to a kind of history of this thing. But the other thing, kind of the main point that I think he thinks about is, you know, we have this narrative of the First World War being this kind of shocking eruption of violence, but actually all of these European powers were, you know, practicing extreme amounts of violence consistently elsewhere. And this was the moment where all of these colonial battles that were bloody, that were brutal, but were mostly not happening here, came home. Um, and that's kind of one of the parts of the article. And, you know, there's lots of specific things he cites that are quite interesting. But I just thought, given our times and given this anniversary, it is a sort of very obvious aspect of the First World War that is nonetheless sidelined. Um, so if you're up for a thoughtful but depressing read, it's a good one. So thank you, Jan. Thank you, Suda. We will be watching intently to see what happens. This podcast will come out shortly before the Congress. So um, you heard it here, and then you can watch and see what happens and how our predictions turn out. Thanks for listening to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. Out of Order is produced by Sydney Simon and Zachary Tarrant. New episodes will be available every other Thursday. Subscribe and download on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts.